Amen. Thanks, guys, for leading us in a worship through song. And sweet truths to be singing together tonight as we jump into our study, back into our study, um, on the kingdom, this theme of God's kingdom. And specifically, uh, as Pastor Brian said, we are looking at our future reign with Christ on earth. That's this millennial kingdom, what we're calling the millennial reign of Christ. And if you're new tonight, or you're just entering into this series, maybe you've been in Adventure Club or something, you're back in here, and uh, this is your first night. Uh, Or if you're new to the church, you might think millennial reign, that sounds a little interesting. Uh, What does that mean? Well, Pastor Brian, a few weeks ago, covered this in depth, but um, we're taking this language, millennial reign, from Revelation chapter 20. And in that chapter, John describes what will happen when Christ returns. And he tells us that when he comes back, he will resurrect his people and reign with us for a thousand years, for a millennium. That's why people call it the millennial reign of Christ. Now, again, if you're new, that might seem like a weird way to talk about Jesus reigning for just a thousand years. Thought he was going to reign eternally. What's, what's the, why, why, is there, why is there a time stamp? Why not just reign forever? Well, he will reign forever. But in this particular phase, this particular reign has a purpose. It's for Christ and his people to take dominion over the earth, like Adam was supposed to do, like we saw last week. And Tim showed us in the last session that God's original design for all of us, for all humanity, was to reign with him, to reign on his behalf, and take dominion of this earth. And that's really where this idea of the millennial kingdom takes root. It's all the way back in Genesis 1. Adam was tasked to take dominion of this whole planet. Which means he needed righteous kids who could help him subdue the planet for the glory of God. But we also saw last time that it never fully happened. The mission was never fulfilled because of sin. But now Christ has come and He's reconciling people back to God and He's multiplying us, as we'll see, as the gospel spreads. But that is not the end of the mission. One day, when Christ returns, His people will complete the dominion mission. That's because when the King returns to earth, He will gather His people to the land, He will raise those saints who have died, and He will put us all in positions of authority over the nations. It's a day of the greatest of reversals. God's people who seem weak now, who suffer now, who are martyred now, will be suddenly gathered in and raised from the dead, planted in the land, and we will be in charge. And for a thousand years, for almost 12 human lifetimes, we will rebuild and renew this place and we will subdue it for the glory of God. We will work with Christ to take dominion of this earth as we were originally intended to do. We will put down all rebellion, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by our righteous reign with Christ. Now, as amazing as this millennial kingdom is, it's not the last stage, there's more. When Christ and His people, when we finish the task, when we finish the dominion mandate, this will give way to something even more amazing, more glorious, to the final installment of God's kingdom, to the new creation itself. 1 Corinthians 15 says that when Christ has put all His enemies under His feet, with the final enemy being death, that He will hand the kingdom over to God. And that means... The mission is complete. And that means the eternal state can come. The new heavens and new earth where John says in Revelation 22 that we will reign forever and not just for a thousand years. So as amazing as the millennial kingdom is, it is not that final stage of God's kingdom. That's why some people have called this 1,000 year period the intermediate kingdom. Right? It's intermediate. It's coming in the middle. 
It's intermediate in the sense that it's actually not the final state of God's kingdom plan. The completion of that reign results in the new creation. And that's where all this is headed. Everything we're talking about in this series headed to the new creation. But our study is focused on this intermediate stage where we will reign with Christ over all the nations. And like Pastor Brian said a few weeks ago, we're focusing here because for whatever reason, there seems to be a lack of clarity on this particular phase of God's mission, God's kingdom. Now, to be fair, there's a lot about the future that God has not revealed to us. A lot that we do not have clarity on, and that's by God's good design. And many times, a lot of well-meaning people go way too far, and they try to make the Bible say things that it doesn't say. And there are certain things about the future that God has made clear, though. And he wants us to understand them so we will have hope in every season. So we'll be equipped to endure even the most difficult circumstances. And the clearer our vision is of what's to come, the better we will live today. And as we're arguing, this this concept of, of the millennial kingdom is part of that clear vision. It's what God has clearly revealed. And so we're teaching it, attempting to teach it, uh, with clarity. But we need a series like this more than ever. We need our eyes fixed on the coming of the King to make everything right. As we speak, Western civilization is crumbling. With each passing day, pressure mounts against the church in America. We become more and more marginalized. Just this past week, it was a conference uh, with a lot of fellow pastors, and I have a friend that I graduated with from Expositors, and he pastors in Canada. And he told me that because of the recent rulings, that he could theoretically be imprisoned for preaching a biblical position on human sexuality. So far, the government hasn't acted on any of that new legislation, but that could change at any moment. And if we're not careful, when we think about these things, Fear can grip our hearts. Fear can leave us paralyzed. Panic attacks, racing in the middle of the night. When we think of what our children and grandchildren may very likely have to endure. And one of the most powerful ways to overcome that kind of fear is to have a robust vision of what God has revealed about the future and about this coming kingdom is to know that even if I die for Christ, one day soon the tables will be turned. I will come back. I will be raised forever and I will reign in righteousness over those who killed me. New legislation is coming on that day. New economy is coming. And whatever was taken from me in this time will be repaid ten times over by Christ the King. And it's truth like this that will change the way you live and die. So we've got to know it. And it's not just to get our finer points of theology right, although that's important. But we've got to know it to find the greatest motivation now to endure for Christ's sake and to live fruitfully for His kingdom today, no matter what we face. Amen? Now, sometimes... Segwaying into tonight, sometimes people think that the Bible's teaching about the millennial kingdom is found only in Revelation 20, right? And it's certainly the clearest and most important text on this topic. We're going to get there in a few weeks. But what we want to show you is that Revelation 20 just doesn't come out of thin air. John's just not pulling this out of just straight, straight from his own inspiration, even though that would be okay. It has a background. This idea of an intermediate kingdom is actually anticipated in Eden, like we saw, but it's also predicted by Israel's prophets. And that's what we're going to focus in on tonight. We're going to take a high-level look at what the prophets predicted about this kingdom, and specifically about the dominion that we will exercise in this intermediate kingdom. All right, so full disclosure, okay? I'm, I'm trying to do the impossible tonight, which is summarize the prophets to you on Super Bowl Sunday. 
So if you just if you just leave, I won't be offended. Okay, so we'll, we'll throw that out there. So that was my only disclaimer. All right, I'm just going to go for it. There's a lot of profits to handle. So what I'm going to do is I kind of punted and I decided to stick predominantly with the prophet Isaiah. Just try to keep things simple. And still, you're going to be you're going to end tonight. You're going to think that that was your simple version. Uh, I hate to see what the complex version is. Um, trying to keep things simple, stick with Isaiah. I'll sprinkle in a few other references as we go, but on the main, we're going to be in Isaiah because he's fairly representative of what we find out there in the prophetic literature. And when we hear these prophets, when we look specifically at what they predict, we're going to find that they set the stage perfectly for what we find in the New Testament, and especially what John picks up and develops in Revelation 20. So tonight, I want to synthesize and then really just trace out a handful of predictions that the prophets make about God's kingdom, and especially those predictions that, that set the stage for this dominion that we're going to exercise in the millennial kingdom. All right, so you can see on your handout there, uh, let me give one more disclaimer as we get into it. Uh, let me spoon feed you that handout. Okay, don't try to figure it out as we, like, let's, let's figure it out as we go. Let's just take it one at a time, but that's just so you're not feverishly writing down all the references as we go. All right, so we're going to look at six specific predictions from Israel's prophets. And the first one that we need to focus on has to do with the most immediate problem that Israel faces, which is her estrangement from God. So if we're picking it back up from last week, you remember that all humanity was tasked with this mission to rule, this mission to take dominion on earth. Adam ruined it, but God was still committed to it. And he promised that through Eve's offspring that he would reverse this curse. And we saw that this, this line developed from Eve, and it led to Abraham. Abraham was promised many children. All the earth would find blessing in him. And then later, Abraham became the nation of Israel. And so Israel was tasked to be faithful as a kingdom of priests. And if she was, she would, be, she would be blessed in the land, she would be raised up above the other nations, and God would use her to bring blessing, his blessing, back to those nations. But what we find throughout Israel's history, really from her inception as a nation, is that she is unfaithful. She's not going to be able to fulfill this mission. And the golden calf on. She would need a king to represent her. And David did, initially, later Solomon. But even these kings, we know, were not perfectly faithful. And eventually, both the nation and her kings plummeted lower and lower and lower until she became so wicked that God just couldn't use her. He must judge her. He'd warned her, and now he must judge her. Exile is coming, and he exiled Israel like he exiled Adam and Eve from the garden. And so, first, the first and really the arguably greatest, most, most significant problem that Israel faces is her estrangement from God. She needed to be reconciled to God if she was going to fulfill her mission. And so tonight we're going to start there with the prediction of reconciliation. Reconciliation. And the, the prediction, if, if we could summarize it, is we could summarize it like this. You see it in your handout. It's that God will reconcile his people through the death of the king. So if you think about it, if we're going to reign with Christ, we've got to be reconciled to him first. And this king, God's true servant, will die for the nation and reconcile his people back to God. His substitutionary death will make them righteous. And it's these people these reconciled people, or as he's going to say, the king's offspring who will reign with Christ in the millennium. Now, obviously, you can see on the screen, this prediction is found in the most famous, probably, passage in all of the Old Testament prophets, and that's Isaiah 53. So you can go ahead and turn there. Isaiah 53, we're going to be all around these chapters, but um, chapters 53 through 55 in these first few points. So we'll go ahead and turn there. I'll have the rest of them up for you on the screen. Isaiah 53. And in this passage, it becomes clear that Israel will be renewed spiritually through the death of the king in her place. 
Verse 5 sums up what's happening in this, in this passage really profoundly. He says, you can see it there in verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. The point is the death of the king in Israel's place then brings about Israel's healing for reconciliation to God. What that means is she'll be faithful in her mission because now she's been reconciled to God. And we'll see in a moment that she's been made righteous. But I want you to notice something very interesting in this passage. First, notice that Isaiah implies that this king dies, but he dies without any children. I'm going somewhere with this, okay? He dies without any children. Notice in verse 8, Isaiah says that he was cut off out of the land of the living. You see that? Verse 8, he was cut off out of the land of the living. What's he talking about there? He's certainly talking about the death of the king. But I think he's saying more. To be cut off out of the land is a specific way of saying that someone dies childless with no descendants, no offspring to live on in the land. Their name is cut off. They don't have any offspring to carry on their name in the land of the living. If you want a cross-reference on that, you can write down Jeremiah 11.19. That same, that same concept is used with that same phrase, and there it's very clear. Jeremiah 11.19. Now, the king dies without children. But even though he dies childless, that's not the end of the story for this king or for his dynasty. Notice in verse 10 that Isaiah says he will see his offspring. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Verse 10, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Well, that's interesting. We know this text so well, but that, that would have been a surprise. What, what does this mean? Well, it implies for starters that the king's going to come back from the dead. But it also implies that the king will build his royal dynasty in a different way. His children, his offspring, will be a different kind of offspring. Meaning a qualitatively different kind. These Israelites will be righteous. Look in verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall, he, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. So what's the point? Well, Isaiah is predicting that one day God will send the true Davidic king, the physical descendant of Eve, and he will represent Israel in substitution, and as a result of that death, this Messiah will create a righteous offspring. Something that's never been done before in Israel's history. This transcends just having more physical offspring. It's a qualitatively new kind of thing, a new kind of offspring that's happening. All right, so that's not all that, that Isaiah predicts here. There's a second and closely related prediction that comes right on the heels of Isaiah 53, and it's in the very next chapter. And that's the prediction of multiplication. Prediction number two, multiplication. Well, we could summarize it like this. God will multiply his people through repentance and faith. God will multiply his people. He will increase his people and that will happen through repentance and faith. So like Adam, if we go back to Genesis, like Adam, who was told to multiply for the purpose of taking dominion, so here, the second Adam, the Davidic king, is also multiplying his righteous offspring. And there will be lots of the Messiah's offspring. Look at what Isaiah writes in the opening verses of chapter 54. He writes that the decimated Israel that was in exile will have more children than ever before. Look in, verse, look in chapter 54, verse 1. Sing, O barren one, who did not bear. 
Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Don't hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. Why? For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Now, what in the world is he talking about here? Who is this barren woman? That's the first thing we need to figure out. Who's this barren woman? Well, it helps to know that the barren woman is an image that Isaiah uses for Israel, who is in exile. You can write down Isaiah 49.21 to see that. Isaiah 49.21. It's a metaphor Israel's using, or Isaiah's using for Israel in exile. So when the Lord sent Israel into exile, he took away her children, he made her barren. So he's telling barren Israel, who's been decimated by the exile, to sing. Why? Because she's going to have kids. She's going to have lots of kids. More kids, in fact, than she ever had when she was married. So what does that mean? Meaning before she went into exile. Isaiah is saying that this decimated nation, the nation in exile, is going to have so many children that she's going to have to enlarge the borders of the land when they all come home from the exile. And that's multiplication. But notice also that the birth itself is unconventional. Israel didn't actually bear these children herself in a physical way, he says in verse 1. She's not even been in labor. So what's going on? Well, down in verse 5, Isaiah says that the Maker, God, the Creator, has become Israel's husband. Look down in verse 5. For your Maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is His name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth He is called. Why is that important? Well, this implies that it's the Lord who's producing these children. He's the husband. And when we combine it with what we just saw in chapter 53, that they are the Messiah's righteous offspring, it seems that these quickly growing offspring are those repenting and trusting in the work of the Davidic king. Now, this is confirmed in the next chapter in Isaiah 55. You can flip over one page. It begins with an open invitation to anyone who thirsts. And in verse 3, it requires inclining your heart. Do you see that? Middle of verse 3, listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Verse, verse 3 here, incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And if they do hear, if they do repent, turn, listen in faith. He promises to make an everlasting covenant with them, with anyone who will turn. And this covenant, he says, verse 3, is based on his steadfast, sure love for David. What we just saw in chapter 53. So when we bring it all together, we see that these qualitatively new offspring, these Messiah's offspring, are multiplied through faith in what he's done. But that raises another question. Who are these offspring that he envisions here? Well, certainly, certainly he has in mind those who repent and believe from ethnic Israel. In fact, that's like overwhelmingly probably what he has in mind here. That's assumed throughout Isaiah. That's stated so explicitly in so many texts, we don't even need to go there. But even here, right here in Isaiah 55, it's sort of the doors left open. We have another hint that this rapid multiplication of offspring will likely include Gentiles too. Notice in verse 1, come everyone who thirsts. Everyone is invited. And they're invited into this everlasting covenant based on this final David and what he accomplished in verse 3. And then, notice what he says in verse 4, Isaiah 55. Behold, I made him, that's David, a witness to the people's. Notice the plural, to the peoples. A leader and a commander for the peoples, plural. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, 
That's again, the you is singular, talking about the David. You shall call a nation that you do not know. A nation that did not know you shall run to you. Because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. Singular. So Gentiles will be included in this multiplication, this open-ended invite. But this Gentile inclusion is at best hinted at in the prophets. But as we're going to see in the coming weeks, and the New, the New Testament brings a lot more clarity on this theme. The apostles show us that believing Gentiles are certainly included alongside believing Israel among God's people, His multiplying people. The Apostle Paul calls this Gentile inclusion a mystery, something that's not overtly predicted in the Old Testament. It's only hinted at in various texts like the ones we just looked at. So that means that, that you and I, too, are the offspring of Abraham through faith in Jesus. Through faith in the final Davidic king. And that right now, as the gospel spreads, multiplication is happening as people are coming to faith in Christ. And so the prophets predict that the multiplication of God's people will happen as they are in exile. And he's increasing the number of those who will reign in the millennial kingdom. That was prediction number two, multiplication, but it doesn't end there. God will also restore his people, including all of ethnic Israel, from the exile. So we can call our third prediction, restoration. Restoration. And what we mean by that is that God will restore His people to the land by gathering them in from the exile. God's going to bring His people back to the land, restore them to the land by gathering them in from the exile. Again and again and again, the prophets predict that God will bring His exiled people home. He will gather them and bring them back to the land of Canaan. What the prophets ultimately predict are a climactic return of the entire nation and one that we've yet to see even to this day. So let's unpack this by looking just, to, just briefly at a couple texts. Look at Isaiah 14. Isaiah writes in chapter 14, For the Lord will have compassion on Jacob. And will again choose Israel and will set them, here it is, in their own land. And sojourners will join them and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. So here, Isaiah predicts that a day is coming when God pours out his compassion on Israel and ends up bringing them back to their own land. Which is obviously the land of Canaan in this context. And as you can see on your outline, there are lots of these predictions. Again and again, Israel's prophets predict that the exile won't be the final word for the nation. God will bring His people back to the land. Now, all that text and, and the many others in your outline emphasize God gathering believing Israelites. Okay? Israelites. But what about the Gentiles? Well, notice here, even in our text in Isaiah 14, there's another one of those hints. He hints here that believing Gentiles will be part of this in-gathering as well. The sojourner, here he says, the sojourner that's attached to the house of Jacob. And this isn't the only time that the Lord says He will gather Gentiles too. In chapter 56, He says He will bring foreigners to His holy mountain. That means Jerusalem, by the way. The holy mountain in Isaiah is always a reference to Jerusalem. And He ends the passage by saying, this, Isaiah 56, 8. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. And in the context of this passage, he's talking about foreigners, Gentiles. The, these others are a reference to the Gentile foreigners who joined themselves in faith to the Lord back in chapter 56, verse 6. So again, we've got another hint that Gentile inclusion will happen, but that's going to become plain in the New Testament. So, very clear from Isaiah, God will gather His people once and for all back to the land of Canaan. 
And when we pair it with the previous prediction about multiplication, the land won't be able to contain them all. They're going to be so numerous. So the gathered people of the king will spread abroad to the right and to the left, he said. Now, I'm going to dial in here, those who know their biblical history. If you know your history, you might be wondering, was this fulfilled when Cyrus released the exiles to go home? Isaiah himself in the prophecy talks about that. Well, sort of yes and no. Here's what I mean. Yes, in the sense that in a very real way, God sent his people, at least part of them, home. But here's the catch. Many of them did not go back. Many remained in exile. And so that years later, even at the time of Christ, the Jews, most of the Jews, still thought of themselves as in exile all across the Roman Empire. And what they pointed to was the fact that they were under foreign dominion. The Messiah had not led them yet out of exile fully. They knew themselves that they hadn't experienced all that the prophets had predicted. But even after Christ's first coming, the Jews remained in exile. Why? Because most of the nation rejected Jesus. Not all the nation. In fact, thousands of the Jews believed in the opening chapters of Acts, but most rejected. And so God brought another judgment on the nation, similar to the judgment he brought in Babylon, or under the Babylonian captivity. The Romans this time destroyed the city and the temple and took many people captive in AD 70. And so it remains today. There is a Jewish remnant faithful to Christ. There are millions of Gentiles who have come to believe too among the nations, but there is a coming day at the end of this age when God will pour out His compassion on the rest of ethnic Israel still scattered abroad. He will bring them to repentance in mass, according to Romans 11. And then at the end of the age, all of God's people who are alive will be gathered in and restored to the land once and for all. And this restoration to the land is clearly what the prophets predict. That raises another question, doesn't it? What about all of God's people who have died up until that point, up until the final restoration, the ingathering? What will happen to them? And that leads us to our fourth prediction. The prophets predict yet another way that God will bring his people back to the land, and that is through resurrection. Resurrection. God will resurrect his people and bring them to the land too. For this prediction, we're just going to look briefly at one passage in Isaiah, although we could go over to Ezekiel 37, Daniel 12. We're going to stay focused here on Isaiah. So in Isaiah 26, Isaiah is looking ahead to this final restoration in the land. That's kind of the context of this whole passage. It's really a song that Israel's going to sing when she's back in the land for good. But now she's still in exile, she's still suffering. And she's compared to a woman who had miscarried. You see, there's a lot of, a lot of these themes uh, in Isaiah. She's compared to a woman who's miscarried, Isaiah says. Compared to giving, she's, it says she's given birth to the wind instead of to children. And the question is, how are they going to increase in the land if they're, if they're in exile and her children are dead and decimated by her enemies? And then in verse 19, Hope explodes on the scene with this answer. Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is the dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Multiplication is happening through resurrection. 
the earth is giving birth to the dead. And what an incredible answer to how the nation will be increased. Through the resurrection of the dead. How will the land be repopulated? When Israel's dead, come back to life. So when we pair this with the last prediction, we see that there are two ways for God's people to get back to the land. One's being gathered in at the end of the age from the nations, and the other is being raised from the dead. That's what Isaiah said. Now these first four predictions that God will restore His people, multiply them, gather them in, resurrect them, these are all preparatory. Right? They're all preparatory for something else. Remember back to Adam? Why was he supposed to have lots of kids? You tell me. To take what? Dominion. And that's exactly what we find predicted in the prophets. God's restored people will reign on earth over the nations. We'll call this fifth prediction dominion. God will rule the nations on earth through His King and His restored people. God will rule the nations, and it will happen on earth, on this earth, before the new heavens and new earth, and He'll do it through His King and His restored people. Now, I could have like doubled the length of this message by just talking about the prophecies concerning the, the Christ and Messiah who will reign. So we all know those. We're familiar with those. Clearly, the new David is going to reign forever. But the prophets also predict that not only will the king reign, but so will his people. And in particular, they will exercise dominion originally tasked to humans in Genesis 1, and we will reign faithfully with Christ over the nations. We're going to bring everything in subjection to God. And that's the purpose of the millennial kingdom. So let's look at the specifics of what the prophets predict about this physical, earthly dominion of God's people. All right? So, you can see it on your outline, but we're going to flesh it out. Notice, initially, this dominion involves conquering their oppressors. Conquering their oppressors. So, as we might expect, one of the first things God's people do when they're put in a position of power in the millennial kingdom is they conquer the enemy. So look with me at just a few texts that predict specifically with what these renewed people will do. I'll show them on the screen so you don't have to turn there. Isaiah 11. But they, that's the restored nation, after they've been brought back from exile, they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall, here it is, plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab and the Ammonites, shall obey them. Pretty straightforward. Plunder. Obedience. If nations resist the reign of Christ, they'll be defeated. And the survivors will be forced to obey. Here's another one. Isaiah 14. We looked at this one a moment ago. For the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel, will set them in their own land, and sojourners will join them and attach themselves to the house of Jacob. Yes, that's the ingathering. Now notice verse 2. And the peoples, that's another way of talking about the nations, will take them, these were their enemies, by the way, the peoples are their enemies, they will take them and bring them to their place, and the house of Israel will possess them, that's the peoples, in the Lord's land as male and female slaves. They will take captive those who were their captors. And they will rule over those who oppressed them. This is a day of great reversals. Those who had oppressed God's people will be enslaved and ruled over by them. Now this won't be a vindictive part. This won't be a vindictive rule of God's people. This will be a perfect Righteousness, a perfect reign, but an execution of justice for those who won't repent or did not repent. 
And it's clear then that from Isaiah, that when God's people are restored, we will rule over the nations by conquering our enemies. But Isaiah also talks about where we'll, where, not just that we'll conquer, but also where we'll live. What will be sort of the domain of this, this kingdom, this time of our reigning? And he says that when we exercise dominion, that we'll inhabit both Canaan and the earth. Okay? Canaan, the land of Israel, and the earth. And this makes sense. Because, like we saw a minute ago, when God gathers His people, after all the millions of multiplications happened at the end of the age, He gathers His people, resurrects them, He brings them back to the land, and He says they're going to possess the land. It'll be theirs again, the land of Canaan. Listen to the prediction of Isaiah 65. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob, these renewed offspring that He was talking about chapters before, and from Judah, possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it, and my servants shall dwell there. Where's he talking about? Verse 10, Sharon shall become a pasture for flocks, and the valley of Achor a place for herds to lie down. These are actual places. For my people who have sought me. Areas within Israel can be given as an inheritance. So the land of Canaan will be given back to the repentant and restored Israel. But remember that in this restoration, Israel will be gigantic. Right? Or, or the people of God, we could say, will be gigantic. Not only will the entire ethnic nation be restored, but also the millions of Gentiles who have believed over the last thousand years will also, thousands of years really, will be there raised from the dead. And so the prophets predict that the restored people will overflow the boundaries of the land of Canaan onto the territories of other nations and will possess the nations that we conquer. Look again in Isaiah 54. Remember this? Said, enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitation be stretched out. Don't hold back. Lengthen your cords. Stretch out your stakes. Why? For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate city. So he's saying, extend the borders of the land, extend the boundaries of the garden, possess the nations. What a tremendous promise. The nations and their territories will become the property of Jesus and His people. We will rebuild the desolate cities and cause them to flourish. And flourish they will because the prophets predict that our reign, our dominion, will establish God's justice, righteousness, and peace on earth. Because we'll be resurrected and glorified, the reign that we share with Christ will be the noblest of reigns. In fact, the New Testament tells us that even now, He's preparing us to reign with Him. All our suffering here is training us, is cultivating in us what we will need to be faithful then. And our reign will be one of faithfulness as we bring about God's shalom, God's peace on the earth. Notice that Isaiah says that God will appoint princes here, plural, to rule alongside His king in Isaiah 32, and that this reign will be a just, a righteous reign. Isaiah 32.1 Behold, a king will reign in righteousness. Yeah. And princes. Oh, princes will rule in justice. He's talking about that, that kingdom when Christ comes and, 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 and sets up His kingdom on earth. A king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule in justice. And notice the effect. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. What's he getting at? Well, that text says that the reign of the king and his princes will be a blessing. Like the hiding place from a strong wind. It's like getting behind a rock. The rock is the the reign of the princes and the reign of the king. Streams of water in a desert. Those metaphors emphasize the blessing this rain will bring about on an earth that's been cursed. Then just a few verses later, same chapter, Isaiah spells out a little bit more about what will happen as a result of this righteous rain. Look in verse 16. He says, Then justice 
will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. Poetic way of saying justice and righteousness will be everywhere. And the effect of righteousness will be peace. Shalom. And the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in rest, quiet resting places. So our reign, then, is a righteous reign, and it brings peace to a war-torn earth. For the first time in the history of the world, it is a worldwide empire that is a completely righteous empire. Justice in the court system. Righteousness at the highest levels of governance. Economies shaped by the wisdom of Christ and His people. And the net effect is overwhelming peace on earth. And it comes when Christ comes. At His return and our resurrection from the dead. And apparently this righteousness is contagious. Okay? Somehow the previously deceived and rebellious nations of the earth, those who survive that initial judgment, will turn in mass to the Lord. And then God's restored people will bring blessing to the nations. Will bring blessing to the nations as part of our reign in this kingdom. In the second chapter of Isaiah, he predicts that Jerusalem will be established and exalted. And when that happens, something else happens too. He says, all the nations flow to Jerusalem to learn the ways of the Lord. So turn there, uh, chapter 2. It's a longer passage. didn't really fit on the screen, so we'll have to... Isaiah chapter 2. This is concerning Judah and Jerusalem, he says in verse 1. And it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways and that we may walk in His path. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations. He shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So it's clear that establishing Jerusalem as the capital of the New World Empire will be the greatest thing this cursed world has ever seen. It will end up bringing blessing to the nations as God's teaching goes out from this city and as her king judges righteously between these nations. The wisdom of the king and the wisdom of his people will end all disputes between the nations. And it says they'll stop going to war with each other. It will be a reign of peace unparalleled peace. And that means blessing for all nations. But at the end of this period, at the end of this era of peace, the prophets also reveal that this peace will be temporarily disturbed. Emphasis on temporarily. What's amazing is that in this kingdom, there will be one last rebellion at the end of this intermediate period. One final attempt to overthrow the king and his people. But this attempt to rebel is put down so quickly, so decisively by the Lord himself. The only part we play is as a witness of this final destruction. So we could say we witness the victory over the final rebellion. Now, I'm drawing this out here because it's crucial to understand when we get to Revelation 20. The Apostle John will talk about this in that chapter, but he's filling out a prediction from the prophet Ezekiel. You've probably heard about it before. This rebellion is led by a king named Gog. And he's from the nation of Magog. 
And he leads many nations that are kind of at the extremities of the earth. He leads them in rebellion against Christ and his people. But what's super important to notice, at least in the Ezekiel context, is the chapters that surround this battle. So, go ahead and turn there. Ezekiel chapter 36. You can see we're coming up on the tail end of our, of our time as the Super Bowl is bearing down on us. It seems a little jarring to talk about the Super Bowl when we're talking about these things, but it's the reality that we, that we live in right now, right? I want to point out the context of this battle that takes place in Ezekiel 38 and 39. So press the rewind button back to chapter 36. Just before the battle, Israel has been gathered in from the nations. She's been multiplied. The land is flourishing. That's chapter 36. Now you could probably, if you have headings, you can probably see that in your Bible. Okay, I'm not going to read it. Just pointing that out to you. That's chapter 36. And then that chapter ends with this multiplication. That, look, at cha- look at verse 37 of chapter 36. Last paragraph. Thus says the Lord God, This also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them, to increase their people like a flock. Like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feasts, so shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of people. Then they will know that I am the Lord. That's the last thing he says in chapter 36. This increase. Then chapter 37 is another vision, but this time it's in a different place. It's in the wilderness. And it's a vision about resurrection. They're in exile. And they're saying, our bones are dried up. We're not going to be able to, we don't have any descendants. We're not going to be able to actually come back to the land because we're all dying. And the short version is, God gives him this vision of dry bones, tells him to go and prophesy to the bones, and he does, and the bones arise, and then they get flesh on them. It's kind of a weird vision. But the vision represents the resurrection of the people from the dead. And they're being brought back to the land. Look at verse 11. He said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Notice that, the whole house. It's all the people. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you. You shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, I will do it. Okay? So, interesting. All right, we've got 30, chapter 36, in gathering, right? Chapter 37, resurrection. Then, chapter 38. After this restoration happens, after Israel's gathered in the land, her dead are resurrected, comes this final rebellion in chapter 38. How are we doing on time? This is so significant. Let me just read this for us. Chapter 38, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face toward Gog and the land of Magog. Gog of the land of Magog, excuse me. The chief prince of Meshech and Tubal and prophesy against him and say, thus says the Lord God. Behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of uh, Meshech and Tubal. And I will turn you about and put hooks in your jaws and I will bring you out and all your army Horses and horsemen, all of them clothed in full armor, a great host, all of them with buckler and shield, wielding swords. But they won't be alone. Notice Persia, Cush, Put are all with them, and all of them with shield and helmet. Gomer and all his hordes. Beth Togarma. I need Tim O'Shea to help me pronounce that. From the uttermost parts of the north will, with all his hordes, and many peoples are with you. So again, still talking to this king, Gog. Be ready and keep ready, you and all your hosts that are assembled about you, and be a guard for them. After many days, you will be mustered. In the latter years, notice, you will go against the land that is what? 
restored from war. The land whose people were gathered from the many peoples upon the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste. Its people were brought out from the peoples and now dwell securely. All of them. Cue Ezekiel 36. You will advance, coming on like a storm. You will be like a cloud, covering the land, you and all your hordes and many peoples with you. Thus says the Lord God, On that day thoughts will come into your mind, and you will devise an evil scheme and say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. What's he talking about? The restored nation. I will fall upon the quiet people who dwell securely, all of them dwelling without walls and having no bars or gates. To see spoil and carry off plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places that are now inhabited, and the people who are gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and who dwell at the center of the earth. Now he goes on to talk about this battle. But my point, what I'm drawing out here is that God comes up against the nation and they are decisively killed by the Lord. There's like not even a battle. It's just death, right? The Lord kills them, destroys them with fire, turns them against each other. You can read about that in chapter 38 and 39. And it's clear in this chapter and in the next that God's people don't fight. We simply witness the destruction. And then we help clean up the mess. Now, why did I drag you through all that? Because I want you to see that even after God's people are resurrected and planted in the land, there will be a final battle, a climax predicted to occur at the end of this period at the end of the intermediate kingdom. And when we make our way to Revelation 20, we're going to see John allude to this very passage and say that these things must take place. They must be fulfilled. Why? Because it was spoken. He will talk about Satan being released and coming out to deceive the nations, the remote nations, the ones that are dwelling at the extremities of the earth, one last time, at the end of the millennial kingdom, and he'll be decisively destroyed. And it's after this, this final battle, the dominion mandate is complete. Christ and his people, the new humanity, have faithfully reigned on earth. They have put all things under his feet. And guess what happens next? Once we've faithfully fulfilled the mission, God brings about his new creation, an escalated state where death is completely abolished and all the nations are finally renewed like us. No more rebellions, only the final phase of God's kingdom plan. The prophets predict this too. It's our final prediction, but I'm just going to share it with you, and you can look up the references later. We'll call it consummation. The final phase of God's kingdom plan. The consummation. God will consummate His kingdom in the new creation. And Isaiah predicts this, too. Isaiah 25, Isaiah 65, Isaiah 66. Complex passages for sure. Okay, so I'm not saying they're easy, always easy to interpret. But these are the places that John gets his language for the new heavens and new earth, the eternal state that comes in after Christ and his people have faithfully exercised dominion over the earth. We made it. That's a crash course on at least what Isaiah predicts about this coming kingdom, and especially what we're calling the millennial kingdom. It's a time when the people of God exercise dominion over the nations of the earth to bring about the fulfillment of what Adam failed to do. And the prophets, we've seen, just set up our categories beautifully, don't they? Now, let me just end with a quick challenge to our brothers and sisters, our friends, who may be leaning toward or maybe are convinced in their minds of amillennialism or postmillennialism. Okay? A friendly fire here. Here's a challenge. You've got to deal with that. 
You can't ignore those passages. It's what formed the hope of the apostles, like Peter. It's what he anticipated when he said in Acts 3 that he was waiting for God to fulfill all that the prophets have spoken concerning God's kingdom. The New Testament authors knew that we were not finished and that all these words of the prophets, including this millennial reign of Christ, must be fulfilled. But beyond our theology, it is the basis of our great hope. A hope, like we said in the beginning, will motivate us to live and die well because the great reversal is coming. We're going to reign with Christ and make it all right on that day. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I do pray that your Spirit would illumine these things to your bride. Fill us with hope as we look to the resurrection, to reigning with you. Help us to submit to you in our difficulties, knowing that we're being shaped for that eternal weight of glory for the kingdom that's coming, to reign with you then. May we set our hope fully on the grace that we brought to us through the revelation of Jesus Christ. We ask it all in his name.